Welcome everyone. This is part two of our mental health series, Mental Health in Trying Times. And um, this particular session is on trauma and grief. My name is Samantha Yanity. I am the justice educator at Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center. And we have a special guest tonight, Tommy Tai. If you're not familiar with, and I think many people are, but if you're not familiar with Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center, we are based in Seattle, Washington, and we are sponsored by 22 religious organizations. We focus on working for justice in the church and in the world. I created this session because as we witnessed this year, a tremendous amount of trauma from thousands dying of the pandemic to our black sisters and, and brothers dying at the hands of police brutality and systematic racism yet again, and with everything going on in the world at such a tremendous degree, I found it necessary to find a space to process a bit of what we've been experiencing collectively. And this is why I contacted Tommy and why I created this series. Tommy Ty is a Catholic husband and father of five boys living in San Francisco area and he, where he works as a marriage and family therapist. So thank you, Tommy, for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Samantha. Before we dive into some questions, I'd like to open us all in prayer. Let's settle in for a moment, just silencing, taking some time to silence our hearts and our busy minds. Good and gracious God, source of life and being. Thank you for being with us tonight in this space and always. God of justice and peace, we ask for your comfort to the many in this moment who have lost loved ones from the pandemic and from racial injustice. Grant those who have passed on eternal rest and may us, the living, bear witness to their lives by daily honoring the sacredness of each and every life, but especially those whose society has discarded. We ask for your resilience, that we may not grow despondent or apathetic, but be the bold people who you have called us to be, outspoken in, the, in word and deed about justice, living as light bearers in darkness, offering love and hope where there is despair. We offer all of these petitions now named and quietly deep in the ache of our hearts. This we pray. Amen. Amen. Tommy, let's start off. Um, tell us a little bit about your work and what you do. Okay. I am a marriage and family therapist. So uh, I'm in California. I know like uh, therapists are different kind of everywhere, but here um, when you have a master's degree and you earn hours, you can become a marriage and family therapist. So I, I do that. And I primarily in my career have worked with those suffering from chronic and persistent mental illness. So uh, individuals who are experiencing, you know, major depression, PTSD, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Um, those have been the people that I've had the pleasure of working with for 15 or so years, I guess. Uh, and I work in, I've, I've always worked uh, in either nonprofits or uh, county-based mental health systems. So right now I work for a county-based system uh, at a walk-in mental health clinic. So it's a really cool thing that not a lot of places have where you can just 
walk in and talk to a therapist and see a psychiatrist right away in one day. It's a really an exciting thing to be a part of. So yeah, that's what I do. And then when I'm not there, I'm at home. I'm in the garage because I have a lot of very loud kids who are um, being loud and kids right now. So I'm here in the garage so that they can keep having fun in there. Um, so my wife and I have five children. Um, there are 10, eight, five. Uh, we have an 18 month old. And then we have a son who was born in 2016 who died about an hour after his birth. So uh, we have him pulling for us up in heaven too. Well, thanks for sharing. So how is it doing therapy in this time? I'm just curious as to you had, you said you were for a work-in clinic. Yeah, for a walk-in clinic. Yeah. It's, uh, it's challenging because it, at least in the beginning, in the beginning, it was very challenging because people would come in um, uh, to talk about their anxiety that they were experiencing, right? Obviously during this, during this COVID crisis and then later on during all this like injustice and, and just difficulty that we've been going through as a nation. And it's hard when you're, because usually when somebody comes in for mental health help, you can be like, okay, like I can help you with this. I know what's going on. And, and in this situation, it's like, yeah, I'm really scared too. And I'm anxious all the time. And so it really was a profoundly different uh, moment for a lot of us therapists where instead of, and I think it was a really powerful moment because it was like, you know, there's often like a power dynamic in therapy that we're always trying to kind of fight against because people see us as like the provider and them as the patient, right? Uh, and that can be really unhealthy and kind of block change. But this moment's been really cool because instead we're like, we're peers on this journey because like they come in and are like, I'm anxious. And I'm like, me too. Let's talk about it and figure out what we can do together to help each other. So I think it's, it's been really helpful actually to, to shift that dynamic. But, you know, it's really causing a lot of mental health uh, anguish throughout this entire time. Like we're seeing a lot of more people having like breaks, uh, like psychotic breaks and really intense mood episodes. And it seems like it's just spurred on by this intense change and not knowing when things right. are going to get better, you know? Mm -hmm. The uncertainty for sure. Have you seen yeah. like, I'm just curious, any suicidal ideation or anything of that nature? Yeah, you know, for, for my work, it's a little bit difficult for me to judge the impact that everything that's been going on has had because I work with a population where that's like present every day. Mm. Um, but I can say at least like in the community of therapists just talking about life, it's definitely something we're a lot more worried about, especially with uh, teenagers and like children and like younger adults, right? Because, um, you know, I, even for my kids, it's like they look to me to be like, what, what's the school year going to be like? What, what's going to happen? When are things going to get better? And it's hard when your parent who is there to protect you just as like, I, we don't know, we have to go through this one day at a time. So I think for that population, we're especially concerned. Right. There's so much uncertainty. Yeah. So one of the main questions that's been rolling around in, in my brain is, well, we've seen a lot of mental health professionals address trauma, trying to address trauma and grief throughout this pandemic. And I just want to get a sense from you. How would you frame, like, what, did, what is the difference between trauma and grief? How does that show up? Yeah, I think it's kind of hard because uh, right now in this time, we use words interchangeably, right? And so it can be very difficult to kind of put down a definition. So what somebody might think trauma is to them might be different than what I think trauma is. Uh, the same with grief. But I think like at its most basic level, we can say that trauma is like an event. It's any event that causes physical, emotional, or mental harm, like the death of a loved one, a death of someone that we see in front of us, or abuse, or being put in a situation where we fear for our physical or emotional safety, right? And then we can think of uh, the result of trauma being grief. 
it's like a normal and natural response to this traumatic event that happened. So it's like the emotional response inside of us that causes us all kinds of suffering. It can make us feel joyless, exhausted, wanting to give up, feeling like things are never going to get better, and a bunch of other experiences that are completely unique. So that's why it's really hard. You know, you don't really want to pin down like what grief is, like what people experience, because we all experience it a little bit differently. And I think it's so important to remember that how we experience it is okay, because that's something we can really beat ourselves up about, right? There's a, the National Institute for Trauma and Loss in Children, and they provide like some really helpful stuff. You know, trauma can feel unreal sometimes, like it really takes us out of the moment. It's so intense and terrifying of an event that we can be like lifted out of the present moment and almost feel like we're in a dream, you know? Grief, on the other hand, feels very real because it's like this piercing pain that's happening to us. Trauma, it, you know, terror is like the most common emotion that we see when we're in a traumatic event like this, you know, people always talk about like fight or flight, right? That kicks right. in. Um, so this feeling of terror that overwhelms us and then has a really lasting impact on us that I think we have to talk more about, right? What it does to us. And then when someone's experiencing trauma, like the lack of treatment can really worsen the condition. And I would say typically we would think of grief as something that kind of changes over time and morphs over time. But one thing that we can get slipped up in is we think, uh, you know, people will say, oh, well, time heals all wounds, like everything's going to be okay. And that leads us to uh, not get treatment because I think like, well, I guess I'll be better in a year uh, or however long, I guess people, everyone has a different, a different length, right? But that leads to so much unnecessary suffering. So I think it's important to remember if we're experiencing trauma, if we're experiencing grief because of trauma or even grief because of the death of a grandparent or the death of a friend, right? That wasn't a traumatic death. It's always a good idea to get help for that because it's, it's just so helpful to have somebody work through those emotions with us instead of just letting them uh, fester. I mean, I, I talked about my son who died. I can tell you like very clearly, like uh, time did not fix that. Like I still, every day I ache about it. Right. And so, but it changed it. It's different. It's not like this piercing, uh, you know, just ripping my heart out of my chest kind of grief. It's just this sort of uh, dull pain that always goes with me that I wish that uh, you know, I could fill with the only thing that could fill it is him, I guess. But so time changes it. And I think sometimes we we change that to be like time fixes it. We all feel better. So that's definitely something to remember. Yeah, I think we we like to put uh, we like to quantify things. I think our natural instinct is to put a time frame on it and be like, well, when is it like, like with the pandemic? Like, when is this going to be over? It's right. over in like two to four weeks. So what's right. the time? You know, and I think people yeah. think of of grief in that way. Oh yeah, it's, just 60 uh, days and it'll be over, right? I'll feel all better. Easy not... step. <laughs> I think as Americans, we have a tendency to think in mag magazine copy and like 10 easy steps to right. all problems. <laughs> That's <laughs> that so right. not the way as we're, we're noticing. So I've read a lot of research over the years and I think some of us have as well that what's interesting is that pain, we interpret it through, my understanding is that we interpret it through the brain, but it's felt and experienced in the body. And what, one thing that I was wondering was when we're undergoing something like this, where there's tremendous emotional and psychological trauma, does it process differently in our body than say like a headache? Does it appear, does it appear in a different way? It, does our brain make any difference or make any distinctions? 
Yeah, I think this is so good to bring up because um, the the interplay between mental health and physical health is so often kind of cast aside, right? Like, um, like you're saying, you have a headache, you take an Advil and you hope that your headache goes away. But do we ever think about like, maybe it's our anxiety that's causing our headaches, right? And how can we kind of work on that? So I think it's really important, especially in trauma, because trauma can lead us to feeling like exhausted, confused, agitated, numb, right? We can be dissociative where we're kind of like lifted out of the moment um, or having like a physical arousal all the time. This is like one thing with trauma that I think is is so uh, damaging to us is this like hypervigilant state that we stay in. So think about, um, you know, talking about this racial injustice, right? And you're living in a, in a state where like you always have to be hypervigilant to something that might happen to you because of the way that this system is made, right? The way that the structure is, is putting pressure on you. Like you can't go grocery shopping without people being suspicious of you, or you can't get pulled over for speeding without thinking that something really terrible might happen. So you're always hypervigilant all the time, right? As a safety mechanism, like any of us would be like that. But that exhausts us so much and wears us down and wears down our nerves where we get more easily agitated. We can, um, you know, get more uh, what we call like an increased startle response, right? Where like someone might walk in the door and like slam the door shut just normally walking in and you kind of like jump because you're just so like burned out on the trauma that you've experienced. So I think, you know, we have to take care of our bodies, but but really we have to find emotional peace to be able to give our bodies that rest because that, that hypervigilance that we, that we can experience, it isn't just like uh, for no reason. It's like our, our brain and our body's response to try to keep us safe, right? It's like there's danger that I know that's around and I have to do something to stay safe. Um, the other thing with trauma that really wears us down is nightmares. So if, if anybody's experienced a traumatic event, you go to sleep and you have a nightmare of what happened to you or a nightmare of something similar to it and you're awake and you can't fall back asleep. And it can get to the point even where we, you know, the sun starts to go down and we start to feel this like agitation and kind of panic inside of us knowing that we're even going to have to go to sleep later and I'm going to have that nightmare again and how is that going to affect me? Um, and these are just things that really we have to figure out that it's okay to go get help for. Because again, the stigma around all of this stuff keeps us from getting help. And then we just continue to go on suffering unnecessarily. And it's, it's, uh, it's painful. It's so painful for people. Sometimes people come in to see our clinic and they're like, I've been going through this for 10 years and I finally decided it's time to go get help. And I just think like, oh, it's, I know that there's reasons we don't go get help, right? But it's so heartbreaking to hear that someone could feel that for so long before reaching out. Um, and then grief, I mean, the physical impact of grief is like, you know, it lowers your immune system. So you get sick easier. Um, you can have higher blood pressure, blood clots from grief. And I don't know if anybody's ever heard of broken heart syndrome before, but you can look it up online. It's a real thing where you're grieving and the grief that you're experiencing can literally change the muscular tissue of your heart. And you can have a, uh, an attack that's like a heart attack. It's different, but has the same symptoms. But because the grief is so intense, it can actually change your heart and you like die of a broken heart, right? So I think we're still like kind of learning these things for so long, even when I started as a therapist, we separated mental and physical health, like it was a line in the sand, you know, like you're feeling this way because you have a physical health condition, like you don't belong at a mental health clinic. And only now are we starting to realize like the holistic approach to, to taking care of people, right? Right. What would you say is like this threshold, like where where we should be paying attention. Okay. Maybe I do need help for something. Cause you, you mentioned being like, like rustled or. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, so, so the, the gold, well, okay. One thing 
you should always feel like you can go get help. I never want people to think that there's like, I have to get like this sick or to this point before I would go see a therapist or go see a doctor. Like, you don't have to wait for a crisis. Yeah, you can go. And, and you know, if you go to a couple sessions of therapy and you're like, actually, now, nah, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need to do this. Like, that's cool. A therapist would feel great. They'd be like, wow, all right, I did it in just two sessions. We'd pat ourselves on the back, right? But a general rule of thumb for like when you need to get help is when you notice that your symptoms you're experiencing are impairing your ability to function, right? So we're talking about, like taking care of yourself. Like, are you still eating? Are you still doing your hygiene routine like normal? Um, are you still able to go into work or do you find yourself calling out sick? Are you still connecting with friends and actually going out with that? Well, not now, right? But hopping on a Zoom call to like talk with them, but even like texting, right? Like when we're having serious mental health symptoms, we don't even want to text people. We don't want to do anything. We just want to isolate, right? So we really have to look at our, uh, the things that we normally do to function in our life and, and see if our symptoms are causing us some sort of impairment in one of those functions, that's like a really big sign that it's time to step up and get help. Even like chronic pain, I looked it up and it was like how trauma can manifest, even if you're not aware, subconsciously or aware of it, that it can manifest in certain places in your body, like in your neck or in shoulder. And yeah. Totally. And even if you can look up studies about like multi-generational trauma that manifests in your body too, where it's like literally the trauma of the, your parents and grandparents that gets passed down to you ends up like you carry that burden too, right? Like you're stressed out by their experience and it can manifest in the same way that you're talking about. So fascinating. So little that we really know about. Our- I know we know nothing, right? It's so exciting <laughs> to, to be able to explore and like, and learn more. And I think um, the more we see people coming into mental health clinics who are like, I went to my primary care doctor and they can't figure out what's wrong with me. And we're like, ah, maybe we can figure this out. Maybe this is anxiety or trauma or depression, right? It's, it's, uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. Um, another question I have uh, that I was wondering too. So many of us or all of us at this point are, have experienced some form of loss during this time, whether it's something that's had, pre-existing in our systems and our structure or something that kicked up in the just now in the pandemic and why do you think it's important for individuals and society to address personal and and systemic loss like a loss of a job or a loss of a loved one and and what are ways is a follow-up real quick and what are ways that we can address this collective grief without further transmitting our own personal loss or trauma to another person? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great question. It's so important. So I think that I honestly think one of the biggest causes of our continued mental health suffering and, and the stigma that we all know that goes wrong uh, around mental health is that we keep it all a secret, right? So the reason that we have to address these societal issues and these personal issues is because we need to talk about our experiences with people who we trust, right? We find people who we trust and share how we feel because uh, you know, it's like, I, I think about, I think about being at church, right? And I think I'm sitting here, I, I have anxiety, I'm trying to take care of these kids, I'm stressed. And, and I look at other people. And I think like, Oh, look at them, they have it together. They have it together. I bet she's fine. And he's okay. But that's because we don't talk to each other, right? Like, the masses ended, go in peace. And then we walk to our van and we drive off and we don't talk to anybody. And even if we do, it's just sort of like, a, a, Hey, what do you do for a living? Like kind of conversation, not like a I mean, we don't really get to know people, you know, and I think if we can use this moment to sort of allow ourselves to feel vulnerable and to be able to talk about what we all go through, 
like instantly like our loneliness would go away because you know we all live this life where we think no one understands what we're going through and no one can help us and people would be scared off if we told them how we really felt and the thoughts that we have but all of us are having those thoughts and feelings like all the time and if only we could share with each other we would we would make such progress i think about uh, Dorothy Day, she's like one of my favorites, right? And she says, <laughs> then you know the quote, right? She says, we've all known the long loneliness and we've learned that the only solution is love and that love comes with community. So, so something that's so important about humanity, but then specifically like our Christian faith is that we're not just like a, you know, me and Jesus have this thing and I'm going to get to heaven and be with him. Like that's not how our faith is. Our faith is about the body of Christ, all of us helping each other, right? We're a community. And without that community, we suffer. So, I mean, I think in terms of like the trauma we're going through, the racial injustice that we're seeing, it's really, we just got to talk to each other. I, I don't know. I don't know if that used to happen, right? Like, I don't know. I was born in the eighties, so I don't know what it was really like before. Do people used to talk to each other? I don't talk to my neighbors. I want to, but there's something inside of me that's like, I don't, I don't. And, you know, uh, one thing that helped me was uh, when we lost our son, we didn't know what to do. We were so lost, right? So thank God social media exists. And, you know, you say something about your experience and we met countless families who had gone through that same experience, you know? And even though like everyone's story is obviously a little bit different, but there was people who, um, you know, it, it's really dark when you lose a child. So it's like, I was like praying for God to take my life. Like, so that just because I was so traumatized over it, right? My grief was so deep. And I could meet people who I could say that to and they, they understood they didn't run away. That didn't scare them. And I think that's what we think. Like if I just told somebody what I really thought, they would run away from me and feel afraid because sometimes we think things that are kind of scary, right? Kind of intense. But if we could just normalize sharing these experiences and talking about them, we would develop this connectedness that would crush stigma because it would be normal to talk about it. And it would help us to feel like there's somebody there who understands. Um, so the second thing, you, you asked that second question about not wanting to transmit like our, our grief to others. So this is something that I hear at least once a week at the mental health clinic where I say, well, do you talk to your friends about this? Do you tell your sister? Do you tell your mother? Like, and people, every person, including me, I've said this too, says, well, I don't want to say that anything about it because I don't want to pass it on to them. I don't want to make them feel depressed. I don't want to have them have to share in this like burden that I'm carrying. So it kind of goes back to the first thing, but uh, people who love us, like our loved ones in our lives, they care about us and they want to help us. So on the flip side, like a lot of family members, we feel like, uh, God, if only I knew how to help, if only I knew what was wrong. And so it's kind of funny because we're in this tension where like the person who's suffering doesn't want to bring the other person down and the person who loves them wishes they could know how to help, right? And if only we could like connect the two, then we would be able to, to have some progress. So I kind of, I, I like to kind of get rid of this idea that we will make someone else depressed or we will make someone else feel traumatized because I really, I truly believe that like as humans, we all have a desire to walk alongside each other. And I really think that that's more powerful than the trauma that would be shared. You know, like when I hear somebody who has grown up, right, when like, like in this moment, like we're hearing from a lot of African American people who are telling us about the experiences they have. And, and as a person who's white, who's grown up in California, I hear these things and they're I, they're hard. They're just remarkable. Like I can barely even think that that happens even here. Like I'm like in California that happened to you. I can't even believe it. 
but it does. And, and like, while it's, it's like traumatizing to hear that that happened to another sister or brother, right. In Christ, like it, it allows me to be able to walk with them and be closer to them and have empathy for them. And then like, want to do something with them and like fight back with them, you know? So I think, um, I don't know. I, I understand that it's, it's, it can be trauma. I mean, I'm a therapist. I hear traumatizing stuff like all day long. Right. Uh, and I get that it can be scary to hear that stuff, but I really think the connection and the community that we all strive for as humans, like, I think that that overrides that. So we have to kind of let loose. <laughs> and an opportunity to be vulnerable with each other. Do you think that there's a way to transform our own personal trauma? Oh yeah, my gosh. And our faith, our faith tradition informs us that we can re- redeem our suffering, but um, I just want to get your insight on that. Yeah, I mean, of, of course, that's, that's definitely true. And then, but also like in the, temporal, in the temporal manner of things, like being able to help somebody who's experienced what we've experienced, that changes everything, you know? Um, like if, if we get an email from a, someone that we don't even know who's like, oh, hey, my, my wife just found out that our, our baby has like a condition they're not gonna survive after birth. And my wife and I will like pull together all the resources we can think of and all the things that, that we wished we would have known and, and you know, send that to them. And then they say, wow, this is so amazing, right? This is like an opportunity to take what happened to you and really integrate it into your life, right? It's hard to, it's, it's like way down the line from an event happening, but like all of this stuff, you, you know, right? The Bible says God can bring good out of everything that happens to us. And when bad things are happening to us, that does not sound good. That doesn't make me feel any better. But as you move past it down the line, you can start to see these little good things that come out of it. And one of those things, right, is being able to help other people who've experienced something similar. And I think that that is such a key. So when I, like, uh, I went back to work and I started a program of calling mothers who had like had miscarriages or had infant death, just calling them and trying to like give them telephone therapy. And that like transformed my grief and really like showed me that there was a purpose to this. Right. Uh, And then I tell them like, Hey, you know, one of the steps in the grief process is to then do that for someone else, like share your story, like help put yourself out there to help another person because now you're able to do that. Right. So yeah. I suppose your question. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, you're giving me a lot to think about, but I'm wondering like when we're in these, when you're talking about like sharing um, with these, these mothers sharing with other mothers, parents kind of reminds me of what I've heard from AA. I guess it's like a similar concept that you're all sharing collectively. This is my story. And this is how I've managed to get through or how I'm struggling, I guess. Yeah kind of build community and bring people together to strengthen strengthen communities i guess and individuals yeah and again there's no feeling like someone saying i know what you're talking about i know that feeling like uh, in, in my clinic we have a really strong emphasis in having peer workers like individuals who have received mental health treatment from our system and are now like working in our system and you know as a therapist i can sit there all day long and be like okay so like you're hearing voices like let's talk about what you can do to like work on that and blah 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 i go on and on about whatever you know, peer reviewed evidence we're talking about this month, but for someone else in the room, who's a peer who can say, Hey, I know what it's like to hear voices. I've heard them. And I can tell you, I know how scary it is. And I can tell you what helped me and what didn't like that's transformative. Right. And so it's really cool for me as a therapist. Cause I have a peer who walks in with me who I can kind of like let them kind of run the show because that's the stuff that like changes people. When you've really walked in someone's shoes, 
they go from like just talking to like a doctor, like you're going in just telling a doctor your problems to having a conversation with somebody who gets them. Uh, and that can like change everything, you know? Yeah, just. But we can also do that, right? We can, we can become that by listening to other people. So that's like a crucial element. Like while we might not be peers, like we can listen to people who have suffered through certain things and really get close to putting ourselves in their shoes, right? And having respect for their experience and kind of letting them teach us what it's like, right? So we can get close to that too. Yeah, the accompaniment part, something that you had mentioned earlier, walking alongside each other, I think that's really important. Yeah, Father uh, Damien Ferentz, I don't know if you know him from your time on Twitter, um, but he, when our son died, he had sent me something that was about the word condolences, because, you know, everybody says like, oh, my condolences, Mm -hmm. and he uh, taught us that that root, the root of that is like condolor, which means to suffer with. And so the power of the definition of that, you know, everyone just says, oh, my condolences. It's like a little platitude. But what it means is like, I'm willing to suffer with you. Wow. That's that's a really powerful, if we could really like reclaim that word, you know? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about, you know, what we can do mental health wise, but like, what does, does, how does our faith, how do you think our faith offers us hope? And how do we share that hope with others? We, you kind of touched on that a little bit, but we can go. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. When you told me, I, <laughs> I was thinking about this answer because you told me you were going to ask this. But I think like just in, in all truth, I think um, for me, it's like the faith is, can be a little bit of a double-edged sword. And what I mean by that. Um, is like in my experience, like my wife was 20 weeks pregnant, right? We went and had an ultrasound and we found out that our son didn't have kidneys and I don't need to get into the whole thing, but like a a baby in in utero, right? Like produces the amniotic fluid at some point by drinking it in and kind of peeing it out, but not peeing, I guess, in the true sense, right? Um, But so if you don't have enough amniotic fluid, you can't develop your lungs basically. So his prognosis was that he was going to not be able to breathe after he was born. So to cut to the the faith part, right? So like I'm I'm a cradle Catholic. I've been Catholic forever and ever. And so I know about, you know, God loves us. And if we pray, God can do amazing things. There's examples of miracles all over the place, right? But I was hit with this moment where I wanted to pray for a miracle to happen, but also I'm being told by a lot of people that I need to prepare for like what's actually going to happen, right? Like you have to uh, while, while your wife is still pregnant, you have to start making funeral arrangements and, and getting caskets and getting birth plans and all of this kind of stuff. So I reached this really difficult point with my faith because I felt kind of like a fraud, really. I'm like praying for something to happen, but I knew in my head that it wasn't going to happen. And that really threw me into this difficult relationship with God because I was like, you know, all the questions we have when we're suffering, like, why won't you fix this? Why did you do this to us? Like, you know, uh, being like a prideful person, I think like, I'm trying so hard to be like a good Christian. Like, how dare you? Like when I was a terrible Christian in college, like my life was great. You didn't let anything bad happen to me. Now I'm trying so hard. I'm praying with my kids. I'm praying with my wife, right? Going to mass every week, like all the things. And then you do this to me, like, how dare you, right? That was that was, I can remember staring at a stained glass window that had like Jesus with like all these kids around him. And I, <clears throat> I remember just looking at it, thinking that like, how could you do this to us? So I think it's interesting because in that aspect of things, it's like, I wanted God to fix things for me and he wasn't going to do it. And so I found myself angry. I didn't want to pray at all 
because of the way I was feeling. And it even gets to the point where it's like, I felt like, does God even exist? Like how, you know, we all ask this question, like how can God exist if all these terrible things happen to us, right? It's like the, the problem of evil is like the quintessential question for, for people who believe in God. And then like, as we move through this process, uh, I started to realize before our son was born, it kind of hit me. Um, one of the prayers that I was always very close to was the seven sorrows of Mary. It's like a chaplet, like kind of like a rosary, but with a different set of beads. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this prayer and thinking about thinking about the Virgin Mary and thinking about how, you know, she's aside from Christ, right? She's like the most important person that ever walked on this earth. Like she's like the pinnacle of creation, right? She's, she's like the mother of Jesus. And <laughs> it's kind of funny because I was thinking, how could you do this to me, God? Like I'm trying so hard. But then I looked at her life and I recognized how much she suffered and how she must have prayed for anything else to happen than what happened. And it didn't. You know what I mean? Like she still walked with him. She still watched him get nailed to the cross. Uh, and then, I mean, think about the life of Christ himself, right? He's God incarnate. And look what he was in the garden praying for it not to happen. And God didn't answer that prayer in that way. And it did happen, right? And yet he's suffering so much that he's bleeding out of his... Right. Well, the gospel, Luke, that mentions his skin. Yeah, exactly. And so it takes it takes time to get there. But for me, that was like a huge light bulb moment that really led me down this path of like, what what is this all about? Like, what is life about? What is suffering about? Like, uh, why does God permit these things to happen to us, you know? And it's, it's interesting because like when this happened to us, it was uh, before my son was born, we had nothing, we had nothing left. Like we felt like everything was stripped from us, right? It's like everything that we knew, all our innocence that we had, it was all stripped. And, and at some point it's like, you have nothing left. You just have God left. And so I wish like hell that like I didn't have to have that lesson to be able to like grow close to God and want to go to heaven. I wish I could have learned it any other way, but I, I don't know that I could have. And I think it changed me. Uh, it changed me so deeply. Right. So, so, and, and when he was born, it was just like this amazing, incredible, awful, but incredible, peaceful moment. And so like, I, I kind of feel like as I move through it and now it's four years later, uh, somehow um, it's like, I see what God was doing. And so our faith, uh, I mean, of course, there's all the redemptive suffering that you were talking about and how we have this power to like offer up our suffering. Christ has like taken it to the cross and it's powerful for us. We can offer it up like a prayer for somebody, right? But at the same time, it's like also this suffering does something to us. It changes us. It makes us who we are. And um, I, it's like, I wish none of us had to suffer, but I know that I'm a different person after going through this intense suffering. Uh, and, and for the, for the better, I mean, it's like, it's so funny. I think you have all this stuff like God and, and all the saints and all these things. And I thought like, yeah, heaven's cool. Like I'll probably want to go there. Sure. And then it's like, now our son is there. Like I baptized him right before he died. Right. It's like, he's in heaven. And I'm like, I am not going to let my wife and kids and myself not get to heaven. Like, this is it. This is like the priority to be with him again, to be with our son. Right. So it's like, I, I wish that I could have clicked into that some less awful way, but I see that God was like, this is the thing that's going to like light you on fire and like make you love me and make you want to get to heaven. Right. So yeah. So our faith is, is comforting, but also in the beginning, it's like, uh, I think, I guess I realized like I must've really 
been stuck at like a childish place, right? Like I, I wanted God to do good things for me because I was trying to be good. And I only trusted him if things were going good. And I didn't want to trust him if things weren't going to go good. It's like, oh, Jesus, I trust in you, except for when something bad's going to happen. Then I think like, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing, right? So it really, it stripped all that away and kind of took all of that away and left us with nothing else, but just wanting to get to heaven. Wow, that's really powerful, Tommy. Thank you for sharing that. It, your story kind of reminds me of Job, where Job is like, God, where were you? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, what I love about that story is that God comes in this whirlwind, like, where were you? You're like, you? Like, you weren't here at the beginning of creation, but I was here all the way through it. Yeah. And walks him through um, this whole amazing visual tapestry of showing where God has, God has been through all of it, even in the midst of our suffering. And it's such a, a powerful, powerful thing to remember. And I, I kind of keep that in the back of my mind because I've asked myself that question, God, where were you? But I also, another image that I, that I keep in my mind is Jesus appearing after the resurrection with his scars and we yeah, often like, right. think of, because we see this perfection, we see a lot of perfect images um, in Sunday morning or something, like the stained glass window that you mentioned. Right, yeah. Forget about the imperfect ones, like the mother holding her son's yeah. dead body. And we've seen that, uh, of course, some of the imagery we've seen of like George Floyd like, calling out to his mother before he died. And the imagery just like just has stayed with me so strongly. Yeah, to me that we have a, a statue of the Pieta like in our in our church in the back and I, I would look at it and it's like, to me, that's like, I mean, of course the cross, right? The crucifix like shows us what it's all about, but that image of the relationship between he and his mother and just, um, yeah, just that image is so important to me in terms of uh, what this is really all about. You know what I mean? Like what life is about, what suffering is about and and what we have to be willing to to do and to be detached from and to kind of hand over to him if we really want to grow in holiness. I mean, looking back, I could say like, I was doing all the right things, but like, was I really willing to like do everything to grow in holiness at that point? Like, definitely not. And like, God knows that. I don't know why I think I can fool him by, you know, it's like, he knows everything, but I'm like, we're, I'm doing cool down here. Like, just trust me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. I prayed the rosary today. Like, like get off my back. But, but he, he demands everything. Right. And, and for me, he put me into a situation where I had no choice but to give him everything. And probably he did that because he knew that I wouldn't give it to him, right? So, right. so but it taught a valuable lesson about what we need to be willing to do to kind of cling to him. Right. So as both a Catholic Christian and a mental health professional, why do you think it's important for um, Christians and people of faith to access mental health to make use of it to advocate and why why should we care about mental health why do you think it's so important i think it's important something that gets lost sometimes in our sort of like saccharine presentation of christianity is that the catholic faith and the christian faith of all denominations are radical in their love for people right radical in their call for justice because we believe in the dignity of the human person so when i look at what jesus teaches us specifically in the sermon on the mount uh, and if you haven't read it in a while, like crack open Matthew, because it's really easy for, for me and all of us to think that uh, our relationship with Jesus is just easy street. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, holy smokes, he's asking for a whole bunch from us, right? So I think it's important to like reread that. But it it gives us this like radical call to 
help our brothers and sisters and love them and walk with them through the darkest valleys in a personal way, right? So one thing that gets lost sometimes is that I think that the Christian faith, and again, like I'm, I'm like a Dorothy Day guy and a Catherine Doherty guy and like a, it's a personalism that we've kind of lost a little bit where like we're so, or I'll speak for myself. I'm so much more comfortable like putting money in the collection basket and being like, all right, the church is going to help people than actually going to the streets and finding out where people are sleeping and helping them personally. Right. So I think we have to remember that Christ calls us to like a personal approach to help every sister and brother that we come across. The thing about getting people to get mental health treatment as a Christian that I think is so important is that our faith is so intensely incarnational and we kind of forget that, right? We see Jesus as this person who came 2000 years ago, God became a human 2000 years ago and that all got wrapped up. And now we're at this point in 2020, like in a totally different place. But our faith teaches us that Christ comes to us in every single person we meet, right? We're supposed to see Jesus in everyone and be Jesus to everyone. So I think that what we have to do is remember a lot of times, like, let's say I'm depressed and I don't want to get out of bed and I'm just doing really awful. I, I think about hurting myself and I'm just in a totally desperate place and I pray to God to help me. I call out to God and say, please, God, help me. I can't do this anymore. And then what I'm looking for is to be able to wake up the next morning and not feel depressed anymore and just feel great. And God like hooked me up and I'm on my way out the door and happy, but that's not what God does, right? God comes to us in the form of Jesus. God comes to us in priests. God comes to us in family members that are trying to help us in therapists, in doctors, in mental health professionals, right? So I, I think that it's important. Oh, wait, what'd you say? Sorry. And then the sisters. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of sisters on the call. So Oh, right on. Definitely. But yeah. So my point is that like we need as Christians to be able to remind people that going and getting mental health treatment is not something that's like saying, well, I don't believe Jesus can fix this. So I'm going to go to a therapist. That's not what it's about. Like Jesus is here, like helping you through a therapist. He's offering you help through mental health professionals. Right. So I think as Christians, we really have to kind of uh, pick up that banner to encourage people to get treatment. And I mean, another thing is like, it's really sad to me to see that, and it's, it's not surprising, but it's sad that stigma about mental health experiences exists in our church, just like it does everywhere else in our world. But God, I, I really like feel like I am not going to rest until the church is like at the forefront of trying to get rid of this stigma and trying to welcome everybody, right? Because like, is the church, is the church like this perfect building where it's full of everyone who's doing great and everyone's life is awesome? No, it's not. Like the church is like everyone coming together, suffering with mental health issues, physical health issues, like all of us, right? The homeless, like everybody, criminals, everyone, that's what the church is. And so it's like, Oh gosh, I just wish that like we could be that that people could look at the church and say, wow, those people look at how they love. Like look at how they love people that it's hard to love. Look at how they love people suffering with substance addiction. Look at how they love people who are suffering from schizophrenia, right? People who get cast aside by the rest of society. Look at those Catholics and Christians. Like they're taking it seriously and they're trying to help those people even though it's hard, right? Like uh you can read the the autobiography of Dorothy Day she really didn't like the fact that there was people who were drinking in the Catholic worker houses, causing problems, fighting, and all of this stuff. Like, she did not like it. But you know what she did? She helped them, and she didn't kick them out, and she worked through it because she knew that they were Christ for her. And if we could, like, embrace that, like, 
man, it would be so nice to have the, it, it's just so heartbreaking when I, when people don't look at the church and see that, right? right. I really wish that they could look at the church and see like, they're the ones who are fighting for the people who are really suffering. So that's us though. Like, right. So I I think the other part of that is like, I can't sit here and complain about like some hierarchical church that needs to do that. I'm the church. Like we're the church. We're the ones that can do that right now. We can't just wait for bishops to do that or for, for anybody else. Right. Okay. Sorry. That was a, I'm sorry. No, that's good. (laughs) Something that you said reminded me of a quote that I read from, uh, uh, Carlos Rodriguez, which is one of my, he's like one of my favorite past. He's a Protestant pastor, um, based out in Puerto Rico. Uh, he put a, he put a quote up today on, on Instagram that said something like it's hard for the world to see who cannot see a, I think it was something like it's hard for the world who cannot see a, like a visible God and, and see that they are loved by this invisible God um, if they cannot see the, the church, if the church doesn't love them or they don't see that the church loves them, I'm sure turning up this quote, but it was something, it was, it was so beautifully, uh, said that if they, if they're trying to see, um, people like a church that doesn't love them, how are they supposed to see a, a God that we can't physically see? Love yeah. Them? I mean, that's like the whole crux of how the early Christian church evangelized, right? It wasn't like they didn't like uh, God didn't appear to people into the 400s being like, Hey, I'm here just so you guys can convert. Right. They looked at the Christians and said, wow, if they're really willing to help these people, like to actually welcome lepers into their like community and to take care of them and to take care of widows when we cast them out, maybe there's something to this God thing. Like how could they be so willing to die for something that we can't see? Maybe it's real. So like, that's, that's a great way to evangelize is to really live out the mission that Jesus calls us to. And it's like, we make it so complicated. Like I think it's, I try to make it so complicated myself, right? One time I saw an interview with Dorothy Day. I know I kept, I keep talking about her, but they say, they, this interviewer asked her like, what made you decide to want to do this? Like, why did you decide to start soup kitchens? Why did you do this? And she just said, Jesus said to feed the hungry. Like what, what's so complicated yeah. about that? That's what he said. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this lady gets it. Like, why can't I get it like that? Right? So if we could be a church that was just so matter of fact like that, like God told us to feed the hungry. He told us to house those who weren't housed. He told us to help the sick, visit the imprisoned, right? Like it can be just that simple and it can, it starts with us. That's, that's who gets to make yeah. it simple us. Well, I can go on and on. It's great, but I wanted to give space for anybody that had some questions that they wanted to ask. So you know how sometimes there are people who've been through trauma, who, if you are a company them they keep going over and over the same thing nothing mm. changes mm-hmm. is there a point at which as the person accompanying them you can do harm by mm. not doing anything but listening yeah okay so so i mean first of all just the fact that you're that you're with somebody and and being willing to listen to them i mean that's incredible so one thing i would never want to have people doing is like second guessing like is is what i'm doing actually like hurting this person just your mere presence is like a godsend to them it shows god's working in your heart right so me as a therapist uh in this i know people probably think of therapy as like oh you come in you lay on a couch and we talk about how your mother treated you 58 years ago or whatever that's not what we do and if somebody comes in and tells me about a trauma that they've experienced that they, they need help with, I don't even necessarily need to hear what their trauma is, right? Because um, what we want to do 
And, and, you know, as you get comfortable with someone in a relationship, you can start to do this. But what I want to do is say, what is happening today in your life that is causing you problems that was caused by this trauma, right? So you had this trauma and I get it and I'm sorry that never should have happened to you. It's disgusting that it happened, whatever it was. But now today, on this day, Friday, you're anxious to go to the grocery store because you're afraid that somebody is going to, you know, going to hit you or going to yell at you or let, I'm just making up an example, right? So let's work on that. How can we fix this symptom that you're left with? So that's kind of the approach that I take as a therapist. And, you know, it takes a little bit of a, a relationship. You don't do that when somebody's walked in the door for 10 minutes and start challenging them and be like, yeah, yeah, about your past, but let's figure out how to fix right now. Um, but once you have a relationship with them, you can push back a little bit. Like, um, you know, I might say like, I, I know that what you've been through is really hard and we've talked about it because I wanted to kind of know what, what had happened. But now let's figure out like how we can bring you peace today. Like, what can we do? What can we do to help you get a good night's sleep? Like, let's talk about that, right? Um, so, so in my work, it's like we really focus on symptoms. What are the symptoms that are causing you problems? And what can we do to bring you relief to those symptoms? Because that's a whole lot easier than, than trying to figure out how to, how to fix what happened to somebody in the past, right? Mm -hmm. That's really hard. We, we can't do it. Um, and so we really want to look at what's happening to you today and try and fix that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. It takes a lot of pressure off me as a therapist because I can be like, let's just talk about what's happening today. But it's really helpful. It's more helpful. <laughs> it's interesting that you said use the word um, symptom because it goes back to like what you said earlier about the, like the, the physical health and mental health and how we sometimes compartmentalize and separate the two and sure. really are treating a symptom. That's right. Yeah. A lot of people, and there, there's, there's two sides to this, right? Like a lot of people want to know like, what's wrong with me? Like, tell me what's wrong with me. Do I have this disorder or that disorder? And you know, there's a pro to that where like, it feels good to have your situation be named, to have your experience be named and then be able to find other people who have that experience. But in other, in other situations, it's like, it's not really important if you have diagnosis X or diagnosis Y, like what's happening for you as a person that's causing you difficulty in functioning. And like, let's work on that together. You know, if it's because you have anxiety or depression or both, like, okay, but let's work on this one problem about you feeling scared, like leaving your house uh, and not worry about like the diagnosis and stuff, you know, does that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a lot of sense because we, we want to like just have a quick fix and just take, like we said earlier, like take a Tylenol and And not to say that, not to say that we don't need medicine for mental health. Sometimes we definitely do sometimes. So that's like another part of it. And when you have a good relationship with a mental health professional, they can really help you kind of decide uh, when the time is right for that. So. Does anyone have any other questions? I think I hear someone, but I'm not. Yeah, that's, that's me, Marilyn. Hey, Marilyn. Hi. I wildly at the end of a really, really horribly traumatic, hurtful life. I'm really old now. I, I accidentally went to a, a, a shelter one night of, in 1986 and they uh, and to serve dinner and I immediately knew that's where I had to be and it was, didn't make no sense. Why should I be with drunks who, who were homeless for 30 years? Why am I comfortable here? Yeah. Because that's where I was supposed to be. I would never, I have been had my head bit off with that phrase, I know how you feel, because I do not. Yeah. I have experiences, you know, they can, what, you don't know, what do you church people think <laughs> you know everything, you know, I don't yeah. even bring God up. Eventually, as I re relationship goes on, 
they they stop and ask me one day, look, what are you do? Why are you here? You know, why are you doing this? Yeah, that's my opening. Now I got it. But if I, you know, the church people think, you know, everything I have to get the relationship. And I'm in a lot of pain. They're in a lot of pain. And I swear to God, we can smell it in each other. We're attracted to each other. That pain is there. And it's just a way of getting together around the pain. So Yeah, I know it being a therapist going to parties and all of a sudden someone will walk up to me and start talking about their their childhood and their mental health. I'm like, how did you what's going on? How did you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I think that uh I understand how you feel. That's sometimes I say something to to people who've experienced similar to me, like, you know, even though our stories are different, like some of the chapter titles are the same. You know, even though we've been through certain things like we that are that are different, like we have little points in our life that that touch. And so in my small way, like I can kind of I can understand I can hear you. One thing that I bite people's heads off about is when uh, and it's okay if you've said this because I've said it too. But when people say I can't even imagine what that would be like, and I would say you can definitely imagine what it would be like. You just don't want to because it's so terrible. Right. So I think it's it's much better to be like. Uh, I say things like, wow, I can hear how much that really hurts you. I can really hear how hard it is to have to live a life where you've been through something like that. Just, uh, you know, people always say like, (coughs) excuse me, how can you be a therapist and hear all these terrible things? And I think you just be a human back to somebody. You just say, man, that sounds like it sucks. Like it just does, you know, and, and people really appreciate someone just recognizing that because mostly what people do is say i've got a five-step program for how to fix that problem like let's start fixing it right now that's i mean as a husband that's what i do i'm trying to get over that but as a therapist i've learned that's not my job my job isn't to fix it my job is to like listen and be with them and be a person who doesn't say something like you know oh you're crazy or oh get over it because that's what they hear from every other person in the world but just to sit with them and be like dang that sounds hard and even that simple thing is like so transformative to people because uh, they don't get that. I mean, especially in the shelter, right? It's like nobody is giving that to a homeless person. A homeless person is living a life where everything they do is illegal. They want to get water. They have to do something that, that they can get the cops called on them, like something like water, for God's sake, you know, and, and nobody gives them respect. It's so sad. I'm so glad that you're there. But just being able to say, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. This is really hard. You shouldn't have to go through this. Like, I, I want to just be with you. You know, I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that transforms lives. We don't have to fix things so profoundly, huh? Like, I mean, Dorothy Day maybe wasn't fixing people's problems, but she was there with them and she would serve them soup, right? And hang out and have a cup of coffee. And that's the thing that like transforms people's lives, our ability to suffer with them, to give them true condolences. Yeah, that just to to sit, like you framed it so well. That just sometimes it's just listening, being present to someone. Uh, I see you, I hear you, um, and not having. I think our inclination as problem solvers, meaning makers, that we just try to make meaning of something, problem solve for someone. Yeah. We're not taking the time to really sit and be present. Also, I do like to think of the big smile Jesus had on his face back in the 80s when Marilyn walked into that first shelter thinking, what the heck am I doing here? He was like, oh, yeah, I got you. (laughs) Thanks for sharing, Marilyn. I'm here as well for asking your question. If anybody has any questions. Uh, Sheila says, better to wait for someone to bring up their loss. Um, Wait for them to mention it. Oh, sure. I mean, somebody, you know, when I say these things about how we need to be sharing our stories and sharing our experiences, I mean, the caveat to that is we don't owe our experience to anybody, right? And we don't 
have to share our experience with anybody unless we feel comfortable. And so really that's the key is finding people that we trust and being people that other people can trust that they can sort of uh, feel comfortable sharing that. Right. Yeah. And, and waiting for you to bring it up. I mean, only, sometimes just because I've met with so many different people, I can really see people's uh, physical mannerisms or, or things that let me know that they want to share something, you know? And so sometimes it's, it's okay to say something like, you know, it looks like you were going to say something or it looks like you wanted to share something or, and giving them that space. But I would never like prod someone to talk about something they didn't want to talk about, of course. Even if I'm really interested as a therapist, I want to be like, I want to know. No, they can take their time. We should hold space. For oh people. man. I mean, yeah. learning how to be silent is like, just a beautiful key, right? Uh, there's nothing better. It's almost like a game when you're a therapist to be like, I can sit here and be silent and I'm perfectly comfortable because I've done it for so long. But I, I think about um, just kind of crazily, my, my, my son who was in kindergarten when our son uh, was born that died, um, he became best friends with someone whose family lost their son when they were nine months old. So somehow he met this kid in his kindergarten class and they became best friends and they, that family had experienced a loss different than ours, right? Uh, their son lived for nine months, our son lived for an hour, but uh, they knew what it was like. They knew the feelings. And I'm so grateful for my son for becoming friends with this family because when our son died, like they would come over, they would bring coffee and we would just sit on the couch and we wouldn't do anything. And we would just sit there. And just the fact that I knew that this person uh, knew what it was like. And the fact that they cared enough to just come over and sit in the silence, that was like, uh, such a blessing for me. They didn't have to say or do anything. Right. It's like, yeah. And I, I could say what I felt and they, they knew they got it. They didn't run away. They weren't scared. So I think that was, yeah, that's a big blessing. Well, on that note, I'm going to say goodnight. Great. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.